Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Ian Burke. Ian is a professor and R.J. Cook Endowed Chair of Wheat Research in Wheat Science at Washington State University. His research program is focused on basic aspects of wheat biology and ecology, with the goal of integrating such information into practical and economical methods of managing weeds in the environment. Ian teaches the undergraduate courses in wheat science and cropping systems. Hello, Ian. Hello, Drew. So I thought we'd just have a what's new in weed science discussion today. Uh, 2021 is definitely different than 2020. Some new things have come along. Let's talk about it. One of the things I think we've both worked a little bit on is this new um, weed sensing spray, the Weed It system. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you've been doing with that system. Sure. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll weigh in. I think that it's an amazing technology that um, I think we still have a lot to learn about how to use. It's, uh, you know, in the, in the couple of years we've We've had opportunity to, to to use a piece of equipment. It's been clear to us that it is easy to to misjudge rate, to not have a clear sense of the weed density you're going to treat. And when you put those two things together, you could spend a whole lot more money than you had intended to. Um, and so you really do have to be um, strategic about how you mix up your herbicides to go treat a fallow system. Um, when you um, maybe w- might want to use a higher rate or a different herbicide, those are all things we've been trying to tease out as we've gone through our our, our research here in the last couple of years. Okay. Maybe we should back up a little bit for those people who might not know what uh, a weed sensing sprayer or a weeded system is. Can you can I, can you explain the technology and how people are using it? Sure. And you know this is not a it's not a, actually a relatively new technology. I, I would say it's been significantly improved since it was first introduced back in the mid uh, 1990s uh, and there are a lot of competing technologies you don't have to you know we, you mentioned one product the weed it there are others um, weed seeker systems come to mind uh, they all work on the same principle though it's a, a reflectance based system so uh, the all these tools have a light emitting diode array they emit in near infrared uh, weeds any really plant species reflects a different spectrum of, of light back to the sensor than, uh, you know, fallow soil or stubble or rocks. And that's how the system use, uses uses that information to make a decision on whether or not to spray or not. Uh, so the new systems that we're using couple that with some, um, you know, pulse width modulation um, sprayer technology that has a, a very high uh a very fast, you know, nozzle body activation system on it. So uh, you put that together with a, a sensing system and it can hit, you know, it can hit a dime-sized weed going 15 miles an hour pretty easy. And uh, in our experience, the system's not flawless. It will miss weeds. There are certain species that it don't reflect as well when they're small. There are certain weeds that don't, um, 
even when they're a little bit bigger, don't they get missed. Maybe they hold their leaves a little bit differently. And so uh, there's a there's a lot of like I said, there's just a lot to learn about how to use them. Yeah, although you know, growers, there's a fair number of them operating right now, and, and I guess is everybody just kind of uh, winging it and and hoping they get it figured out, or what's what's uh, happening out there? Do you know? I, you know, I don't have a good sense for uh, you know, operational aspects of it. I think most farmers are really innovative and know how to, you know, particularly if they bought this particular piece of equipment and they and there's I'm hearing a lot about how they experiment with using it, you know, different herbicides in the mixture. You know, glyphosate seems like the go-to herbicide to use in it. So you can maybe use a little bit higher rates, but, you know, Sharpen is another product that maybe would fit well with this. Paraquat, you know, bromoxynil and um, other herbicides that maybe we don't necessarily be using in fallow would maybe fit because they're a little uh, more affordable in this system. I'm hearing innovation around what nozzles they use in the sprayer systems themselves. You know, there's there was some confusion, I think, initially. These systems are equipped with what I would call an industrial T-jet line of nozzles. They're very specific to the equipment. And so it's really hard to just go get a nozzle that have, would have maybe have a different um, gallon per acre rating off the shelf. That's just not possible and uh, because the, the angle on the nozzle is very narrow. And so I'm hearing innovation around using like a cone nozzle or instead of a flat fan or a... Um, maybe a slight angling of the nozzle system instead of pointing it straight down on the ground. Those are all things that the system can accommodate with some calibration. But um, So there's been, I think everybody has a little bit of a different flavor of how they're using it. Yeah. Uh, to me, the, the, the most um, thing I can't quite figure out in a lot of cases is what rate's supposed to be used, right? Do you use the, the broadcast rate or do you use the, the um, spot treatment rate and... and how do people make that decision? You know, there's a, unfortunately, the herbicide labels have not kept up with this technology, uh, at least in the United States. If you uh, look up some of the herbicide labels in Australia, there's an optical sensor sprayer section on certain labels, particularly Roundup-type products, glyphosate-containing products, that they would be using fallow, sort of the same situation we're using uh, the system in. And, you know, we, we took a little bit of... Uh, inspiration from those labels. If you look at those those labels carefully, it says, if you're about 30% weed cover and below, then you could probably use a higher rate of glyphosate. And if you're at about 30% or above, it's better just to stick with the label use rate. Uh, the United States labels um, are written more for broadcast sprayers. And so we have to follow that label. And uh, the label is very specific about how much we can apply per acre and uh, in what situations you can apply, uh, you know, different rates. Uh, certain herbicide labels do contain a spot treatment section. And, and I think that you could interpret this system as a spot treatment, particularly if you were treating a, a fraction of the acre, like that weed populations are very low. Uh, but that's, that's a difficult thing to counsel growers on how to decide rate. Uh, in general, when I've talked with, um, you know, chemical companies about this, they've been very clear that, they should follow the broadcast guidelines if they're treating a significant proportion of the acre. Okay. And I, th I think I've talked to you a bit about this. Uh, I, you know, some thinking is in the earlier fallow season when you tend to have more weeds out there, maybe it's better just to broadcast and then save the, the, the sense, weed sensing sprayer for later in the season when it tends to be just patchy weeds here and there. Is that still your thinking? Or? I, I, 
I guess I would say that my only modification of that recommendation is just to use the weed it. Okay. At every opportunity, you know, even if you're only treating 70% of the acre and you're running a relatively moderate rate of glyphosate, you're still going to see some savings. Okay. And if you spread that over a thousand acres, it could be a real dollar amount. And you start putting some zeros on that. Yep. And it starts adding up, doesn't it? Okay. Well, that, I think that's really interesting technology, something that's catching on and we're, we're learning a little bit more about. Um, another one that uh, I think a lot of growers may be interested, at least pulse growers, is the labeling, labeling of pyridate for use in, in pulses. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a, a, a herbicide that was introduced uh, under... I think was a section 18 in the early 2000s. So there are a few people who still remember how to use it. The product hasn't changed. Um, it went through a couple of different companies and now um, Belchim out of Belgium uh, is going to be marketing it in the United States. There's been some mint growers that have had an opportunity to use it in the last couple of years, but this will be our first opportunity to use it in chickpea. Uh, there's quite a rate range on the label. I think you can go from 12 to 24 ounces of, of tough. And uh, I think growers are going to have to um, carefully consider cost and and what they want to get out of the treatment. You know, we've had really good success at 12 ounces for control of just common lambs quarter. Uh, but if you're up against uh, some other weeds, particularly mayweed chamomile, where we've seen some activity, you might want to consider a higher rate. Uh, but again, that's going to have to be balanced against cost. The other big question I have, you know, we've done a lot of small plot work where we mixed it with um, clethodem formulations, the old 2EC formulations in particular, and uh, we haven't really seen a lot of um, crop injury as a result of that mixture, but uh, we do know that that potentially could cause some crop injury. And, and so uh, if growers are considering tank mixing, uh, they might, might have, um, maybe be careful with the surfactant mixture they're using with that. Uh, but otherwise, um, we've we've had really good success, excellent crop safety in our chickpea with with pyridate, and uh, it really helps out with common lambs quarters. That's really what it does best. Okay, and you mentioned chickpea. Is it going to be labeled in any other of the pulse crops? I anticipate maybe a pea label in the next couple of years. I know they're interested in expanding um, that label. Um, Joan Campbell, University of Idaho, has also been exploring its use in lentil, although that might be a little bit more um, finicky. Uh, but yes, we're interested in seeing this post-emergence broadleaf herbicide expand into some of our other pulses. That's really been what's missing in all of our pulse crops is a good post-emergence broadleaf product. And, and this may not be the end-all be-all, but it does. it is a good tool to add to our, our chest of tools. I, you know, I, I can't overemphasize that enough. It is not a system unto itself. You're still going to have to use pre-emergent herbicides. You're still going to have to go out and control your grasses post-emergence. Um, it, it's something that can help you get through that weird season like we're having apparently this year where it's going to be dry. The pre's might not work as well. Yeah. And lamb's quarter seems to come along in these sorts of years and it might be really helpful. Yeah, good point. Uh, another uh, area I think uh, you're working in, and I've, I've done a little work in, is the harvest weed seed control. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Yeah, and this is definitely something that you've been um, the leader in. This is um, more of an opportunity um, for me to, to get into it with a, a graduate student who expressed some interest in Italian ryegrass research, and this seemed like a good opportunity for us to kind of collaborate on it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can manage weed seed at harvest. 
And, uh, you know, the Australians have been leaders in this, this regard. Uh, we've been slow to adopt this sort of technology, mainly because we haven't had the herbicide resistance issues that they've had. Although I think that's changing. And, uh, and so we're trying to think of ways to adopt some of their innovation into our own systems. And it, I don't think it's going to look the same. I think, I think um, a lot of farmers we're working with are going to have to lean in and, and innovate along with us to, to identify opportunities for us. Uh, you know, so there's chaff lining. Um, there's the seed terminator technology, which involves a hammer mill mounted up underneath the combine or in a trailer. Um, there's direct bale systems that also serve the same purpose. Um, there's, you know, wind row burning, um, which we've observed on occasion here and there, here in the Palouse. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of different variations of, of technology we could, we could do. Chaff lining in particular seems to be very popular in, in areas of Australia that I visited. And it's, I think, popular because farmers can essentially make a chaff lining system that mounts onto their combine relatively inexpensively you know, a few thousand dollars worth of investment. And uh, you can you can use that sort of tool. Uh, where the Aussies do it, they, they also couple that with, with controlled traffic or tram lining. And uh, that's a little bit harder to swallow here on the Palouse. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. Uh, most farmers go, well, I, I just don't think that's going to work. So when you tram line, you got to have sized equipment. So if you have a 30-foot header, you got to have a, you know, a 30-foot planter or a 60-foot planter. Or, and you got to have a, you know, a 60 foot sprayer or a 120 foot sprayer. And you want to really make sure you're driving over that chaff line as often as possible to really um, make that area as inhospitable to the ryegrass as possible through compaction. And, uh, and that's harder to do on our um, very unusually shaped fields and, and with all our contours. But I think if the technology works, then we'll figure it out. Uh, the seed terminator works a little bit differently at you know, it just grinds the chaff coming out of the combine and dust along with the weed seed. You don't necessarily have to do controlled traffic to do that, but it's a lot more expensive. And uh, I think that that's going to be a sort of a value proposition. And it's expensive not just to mount on the combine. It, 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 it's an industrial hammer mill. It costs diesel to run. And that diesel is measured in, you know, dollars per acre. And so uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of numbers we've got to crunch to figure out if that's worth it for us. Yeah, I think the the chaff lining might be a good entry point into harvest weed seed control to see whether it works for you and your system. And then if it does, you might consider some of those more expensive approaches. But um, there are, as you said, a number of different ways to, to do it. So um, you mentioned harvest weed seed control and Italian ryegrass. You have a student uh, wanting to do some work. Um, what's happening with Italian ryegrass? It seems like it's the bane of just about every farmer here in the higher rainfall zone. It's, it's really, I think for the last couple of years, been obvious to everyone, um, particularly here in the Southern Palouse, but, but in other areas as well, that we're changing the rotations because of it. And it's by, you know, pure serendipity that we happen to have a rotation that, that makes sense where we're rotating to Roundup Ready canola, uh, particularly spring canola. And so we're substituting that spring canola in place of um, a pulse, um, sometimes in place of even the spring wheat rotation. I've observed a few farmers even um, double cropping spring canola to try and clean up their Italian ryegrass populations. And that's really a symptom of our problem. It's, it, you know, our typical tools that we've used and 
of for decades now in our winter wheat rotations are really not very effective anymore. Um, these days, I like to say that if you know if you're not using a pre-emergence herbicide like Zidua or Anthem Flex for managing uh, tine ryegrass and winter wheat, you're likely not going to be harvesting that winter wheat in certain areas. So um, that's been also an incredible change for us over the last, I would say, six years. So uh, these are all tells that you know, our system is is not as sustainable as we thought. And uh, this this is a particular wheat that can really fundamentally change how we farm. Yeah, I know. I'm a little concerned that while it's nice to have a tool like Roundup Ready canola, that if that's all, if we're just going to start putting a lot of selection pressure on this Italian ryegrass or glyphosate resistance, we know it can develop. It's in the orchards where they've relied on glyphosate heavily that we'll just find uh, biotypes resistant to that. And then what do we do? So it's, it's, a, it's a weed that really poses a lot of uh, concerns for a lot of growers. You know, one of the most interesting um, discoveries that, that I, you know, came out of your program, Dr. Mark Thorne um, had an opportunity to, to monitor ryegrass populations after a direct bale system pass. And uh, he was, so he was able to do a, a study where he was, you know, he's looking at a lot of residue and not a lot of residue, you know, standing stubble sort of situation, but, but it was very short. And uh, he was able to document that the, you know, Zidua treatments uh, after a direct bale pass were far more effective in, than areas where there was stubble that was laying on the ground. And so I think uh, for those farmers who are, are pulling heavy harrows around and, and really trying to uh, make that that stubble layer uniform, and that's actually a detraction from the activity of some of our pre-emergent herbicides. So there, I think there's a lot of uh, additional work we need to do to understand how to use these tools effectively and make them fit into our programs and and our conservation systems. Okay, so while uh, Italian ryegrass is the bane of farmers here in the high rainfall zone, you go to the drier regions and it's downy brome. We seem to be having uh, similar sorts of issues with downy brome. Can you talk a little bit about what you've been seeing and doing in that realm? Yeah, you know, um, you know downy brome, we've essentially exhausted all our tools for downy brome in certain areas of, of eastern Washington. You've heard that heard me say that before. Uh, it's, in my mind, far more impactful on a far greater number of acres than even Italian ryegrass. Uh, it really scares me. So we've been trying to think about how to um, you know, take a different approach and maybe understand why downy brome is avoiding some of our, our input so effectively. <laughs> if you, it, the Latin for downy brome is bromus tectorum, and tectorum translates to roughly of thatched roofs. So where downy brome originated in, in you know, Asia Minor as a species, it was quite common for it to infest the thatched roofs of houses. And that kind of gives you some insight to what that plant can do. It can exist in these um, residue layers that we leave sitting on the surface. And even if you use a pre-emergent herbicide, it's not going to root into that soil. It really doesn't have to, and it can still make some seed. It's an extraordinary a plant. So uh, we've started to really tr try and understand how flowering time and climate interact um, to, uh, to try and, and figure out if we can get a little bit better sense for uh, more opportunistic times for management, um, try and understand uh, seed dormancy mechanisms. We know that there are a few at work in, in that particular species. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that we've, we've made a lot of headway. I guess the most important take home 
you know, we think of Russian thistle as being pretty mobile. And I, what we're beginning to realize is that our implements are dragging weed seed around, the downy brome seed around to different fields. And it's having sort of the same effect. The more you enrich that seed bank by moving the seed around for downy brome, the more adaptable it is. So if we really want to um, select against it in our farming systems, we've really got to start being more proactive about cleaning gears, move from field to field. And, and uh, so we're beginning to really try and think evolutionarily about this weed, um, long-term about this weed. I think that's what it's going to take to, to solve that problem. All right, Ian, I, I could talk to you all day about different weed uh, uh, options out there and what's happening in the weed science world, but uh, we'll leave it there for now and hope to have you back on not too far down the road to talk about some more things. Thanks for the opportunity. Good to visit, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.